0: Stay
1: if you are in a storm remember the Sun will shine again that's a good study you should have said amen there but uh, that's all right well I would encourage you to open your bulletin to where you can jot down a few notes as we um, begin our, our our study of the word we are continuing as uh, pastor Jim said our series entitled God's text message or text message from God. And my goal today will be to try to establish that the Bible is not just any book. Rather, it is a truly unique and special text message from God. Now, to try to set up our lesson, there's a story that has floated around for years, and if you've attended church, you probably uh, have, have heard this story. But there once was a seminary student that was preparing for the ministry, and and this student really had a desire to live his life the right way. And so whatever he did throughout the day, he tried to make sure that it was backed up by a verse in the Bible, which really is a good thing. And, and probably most of us should be more concerned about that. But at times his conscience could be overly sensitive and, and, and he couldn't find a verse that literally, if he couldn't find a verse that literally gave him the green light to do something, then he wouldn't do it. Well, this especially brought about some distress when he began to be interested in a young lady, And as he spent time with her after several weeks and months, he he grew fond of her, and and so he had this normal urge, and it is a normal urge to want to just give her. And at that point, it was just a simple goodnight kiss. But as always, he wanted to make sure that he could find a Bible verse that would give him the green light for this goodnight kiss. And so he, he he researched different verses, but to his dismay, he couldn't come up with a verse that, in his mind, gave him permission to kiss his girl good night. During that time, he stayed true to his conscience, which which was admirable. Every night he would walk her to her dorm room, look longingly into her eyes, and, and even sneak a glance at her lips. But he wouldn't allow himself the joy of a simple kiss, because he couldn't come up with a Bible verse that would okay it. So, he would put his head down and sadly walk away. This went on for quite some time, and and one day he was reading in the New Testament and he came across that passage in Romans that says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And he got this big smile on his face and he thought, yes! I finally have God's green light to kiss my girl. But wanting to make sure that he wasn't taking this verse out of context, he went to one of his professors and, and explained the situation and he said, Prof, what do you think? Have I finally found the missing verse that I've been searching for. And this professor rained on his parade and said, well, son, I'm sorry, but the kiss that's being referred to here is not a romantic kiss. This is the kiss of a greeting in a church setting. And so that evening, the, the young man was devastated as he walked his girlfriend to her dorm. And, but this time, as he looked her in the eyes and longingly looked at her lips, the girl grabbed him pulled him toward her, and she planted a big 15-second kiss right on his lips. And at the end of the long kiss, the seminary student gasped for air, and he stammered, Bible verse, Bible verse. And Well, the girl grabbed him a second time, and just before kissing him again, she said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. (laughs) Now, young people you probably shouldn't use that verse in that context. Uh, but re- regardless, the, the, the Bible is still a very remarkable book that gives us advice and counsel for so many areas of our life. And one thing that occurred to me this week, and I'm sure you thought of this many, many years ago, but the, the Bible, or, or, or what we're calling text message from God, it, it just occurred to me, in a sense, this is the breath of God. That occurred to me this week. I am holding in my hand the breath of God. Because Second Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Furthermore, we read about the Bible in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges, listen, it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So you have a lot of books today. You've got church manuals that judge actions. But this judges thoughts and attitudes. And then Psalm 19 even gives us more amazing insight into this remarkable book. Verse 7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So do you find yourself in need of revival? Do you ever come to the point where you realize that maybe you're cold spiritually or lukewarm spiritually? Read this book. It revives the soul. It goes on and says, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. And, and that ministered to me this week because there might be one or two of you that are kind of like me. We're, we're really just simple beings. But, but this book will take simpletons like me and maybe a couple of you, and it will make us wise. I thought there might be a couple of you that would say, amen. Amen. And it goes on and says, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. So do you find yourself sad? Read this book. It gives you joy. And then it goes on and says, the the, the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The, The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. And then listen to this. They're more precious than gold. In our class, Life Group, on Wednesday nights, David Platt, our presenter, he was talking about, would you rather have, uh, I don't know if it was $100,000 or something like that, or the Word of God. And here it says, you know, this right here is more precious than gold. Than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great re- reward. Now, I will be the first to admit that I don't understand everything about the Bible. Very, very frequently, and maybe because I'm one of those simpletons, but very frequently, I read things that I can't wrap my mind around. But as Mark Twain has been quoted many times, and, and, and you've heard this, but he said most people are bothered by those passages of the Bible they don't understand, but the passages that bother me most are those I do understand. You know, all of us here today, we have enough of a mind to where we can understand enough of Scripture to make it to heaven, even if you don't understand parts of it. So, so don't worry so much about the difficult Scriptures. Yes, you need to study them, but... You know, I was just thinking of some difficult scriptures that kind of confused me. In scripture, Jesus says, Beware of dogs in the circumcision. That's kind of confusing there. And then there's a scripture where Jesus got mad at the fig tree and cursed it. And don't worry about those scriptures so much. Don't worry about the scripture in Genesis where it says that the sons of God took the daughters of men for their wives. You know, study those scriptures, but worry more about scriptures that we understand, such as the wages of sin is death. Worry more about scriptures where it it says, repent and be baptized. Worry about scriptures that say, follow Jesus. Now, this morning, I want to structure our thoughts around two words that will help us understand how incredibly unique the Bible is. Very simple, because I'm a simpleton. First of all, the Bible is reliable. Some people say that because of how ancient Scripture is, you really can't count on it being reliable. And they use an illustration like this. You know, whenever you you gather in a circle and, and, and you play the game where somebody will whisper something to the next person, they keep whispering that along and then it comes back to you. And many times as it circles back, it's far from the statement that you whispered in the first place. And so skeptics will will say, if that could happen in a room and in just a matter of a couple of minutes, think of all the errors that must have filled the Bible in the centuries since it was first written. But I want to take a few moments this morning and calm your fears and let you know that the Bible is totally reliable. The number of manuscripts, first of all, for the Bible just blows my mind. Now, The the, the typical number of manuscripts for any of the works of Plato or Aristotle, and and, and those are some of the ancient works, uh, you know, in literature that that are fairly trustworthy. But they will have from 1 to maybe 10, 20 manuscripts maximum. That's it. But listen to this. For the Old Testament alone, there are over 14,000 different manuscripts, or at least portions of manuscripts. 14,000. For the New Testament, there are over 24,000 manuscripts or reliable copies of those manuscripts. And when I say reliable copies, let me assure you that the process by which manuscripts were copied makes them reliable copies. Because of the great reverence the Jewish scribes held towards the scriptures, they exercised extreme care in, in making new copies of the Hebrew Bible or the manuscripts. And, and I could go into a lot more detail, but let me give you a short version of how meticulously the scribes were about making sure that nothing was changed as manuscripts were copied. First of all, synagogue scrolls had to be written on specially prepared skins of clean animals. Each skin had to contain a certain number of columns. Each column had to have between 48 and 60 lines and be 30 letters wide and listen to this the spacing between consonants sections and books was precise measured by threads the ink had to be black prepared with a specific recipe back in those days you just didn't go buy an ink pen you had to make ink had to be by a special recipe the transcriber could not write anything from memory He had to wash his whole body before beginning the process of copying. He had to be in full Jewish dress. The scribe had to reverently wipe his pen. Each time he wrote the word God or Elohim, he had to wipe it down before he wrote it. And then he had to wash his entire body before writing God's covenant name of Yahweh. Every time he would go to write Yahweh. He would have to wash his entire body. But then something else they did to ensure accuracy is that they counted the verses, plus they counted the words. They also counted the letters of each book and calculated the middle word and the middle letter. And so when a scroll was complete, independent sources, and it had to be done within a 30 day period, came in, they counted the number of words. They counted the syllables forward and backward from the middle of the book to make sure that the exact number had been preserved. So let's just say that a book had 7,000 words. Let's say that the middle word was God. Um, You know of course then uh, the middle letter would be O. So the first checks and balances, of course, then they would, they would uh, look for the, they would count it, make sure that there were 7,000 words. Then they would look for the middle word and see if that matched. And, and then, if that matched, then they would look for the middle letter. And if it came up to be G instead of O, they would have to go back and find where the error was, even if it was just off one letter. Now, up to two mistakes could be Corrected. Um, not tolerated. They didn't just say, "Well, well, you know, it's close enough. No, they would have to go back and actually find where the error was and correct it. Up to two mistakes could be corrected. If there happened to be three mistakes, they condemned the entire manuscript because that meant that the scribe had been too careless. These these scribes also treated the text so reverently that the older manuscripts that became hard to read were destroyed because they didn't want there to be any chance of it being misread. The entire scribal process was so meticulous to minimize the possibility of even the slightest error. So don't think for one moment that, that because of the age of the manuscripts that accuracy or reliability has been compromised. So, the Bible is reliable. But secondly, the Bible is remarkable. You know, the Old Testament contains 48 specific prophecies that were published at least 500 years before Christ was born. Micah predicted that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. You know, 500 years before. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 predicted that he would be preceded by a messenger. Who was that? John the Baptist. Zechariah predicted he would ride triumphantly into Jerusalem on a colt. Psalm 41, nine predicted he would be betrayed by a friend. Zechariah 11.2 predicted he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Daniel predicted the Messiah would be killed after his entry. That was predicted 173,885 days in advance. Psalm 22 predicted he'd be crucified 600 years before they started executing people by crucifixion. How would they know execution by crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet? And it was prophesied 600 years before that. Isaiah 53:12 predicted that the Messiah would be crucified with thieves. Forty-eight prophecies were all fulfilled in Jesus. Now, the mathematical odds for Jesus to fulfill 17, just 17 of the 48, and I don't understand this number, but is one chance in 488 billion times 1 billion times 1 trillion. I don't even understand that. I can't wrap my brain around that because I'm a simpleton. But someone says that that means that if every chance were represented by a grain of sand... The sand would fill the entire galaxy, mark one grain of sand with red paint, and mix it with all of these billions and trillions of other grains. Now, if you were blindfolded, and you would be put adrift in this galaxy of sand, the likelihood that you would pick the red grain on your first try is the mathematical probability of Jesus fulfilling just 17 of the 48 specific prophecies. But there were 48 Prophecies fulfilled by Jesus from the Old Testament. You know, the writing of the Bible is also remarkable in in that it spans 1,500 years. There were 40 different authors from every walk of life. Moses, in a sense, was a politician. Joshua was a soldier. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. Solomon was a king. Daniel was a prime minister. Amos was a herdsman. Luke was a doctor. Paul was a rabbi. Peter was a fisherman. Moses wrote from a wilderness. Jeremiah wrote from a dungeon. Daniel wrote from a Babylonian hillside. Paul wrote from a prison cell. John wrote while banished to the Isle of Patmos. Joshua wrote during the rigors of military campaigns. David wrote during wartime. Solomon wrote in the midst of prosperity and peace. The Bible was written in 16 different countries, in three different continents. It was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. It covers uh, hundreds of controversial subjects, yet speaks with incredible unity. Every author, every author agreed that there's one hero, it's the Savior. There's one villain, it's Satan. There's one problem, it's sin. There's one purpose, salvation. You know, if you get two people together, you run the risk of major differences, especially when you talk about politics. That's why we don't do that here in church. But the Bible is full of politics. But there's no disunity. That's a miracle in itself. It's full of religious issues. And, and to think that 40 different authors agreed. And, I mean, today you can't get two theologians to agree on anything. They say, well, I think this. Well, I think this. I think this. And much less 40 theologians. I'm telling you, this collection of 66 books is a remarkable book. Let me give you a few history tidbits. I've given these before, but I still find them so inspirational to me. During the first three centuries of the Christian era, the Roman emperor sought to destroy God's Word. One of them named Diocletian believed that he had succeeded. He had slain so many Christians and destroyed so many Bibles. He imagined he had made an end of the Scriptures. So elated was it. He, he, at, his, at this achievement, he ordered a medal to be inscribed with the words, the Christian religion is destroyed and the worship of the gods, small g gods, is restored. Less than 25 years later, Constantine declared Christianity to, be, Christianity to be the official religion. Asked for some Bibles, in just a few hours he had over 50 of them. I mean, one wonders what the emperor would think if he returned to this earth today and found out that October of last year, And it would be more today, a year later, but I just had the figures of last year, October. The Bible had been translated into the full Bible into 683 languages. The New Testament had been translated into 1,534 other languages. And there are Bible portions or stories that have been translated yet into 1,133 other languages. So, at least some portion of the Bible has been translated into 3,350 languages. Hallelujah. Isn't that incredible? Amen. And last week, remember the Pigeon Bible that we read? And some of you, you've ordered the Pigeon Bible because that spoke to you. You're simple like I am. You can kind of understand that. In the early 300s... John Wycliffe translated the Bible into English, and everyone that possessed a copy of that Bible in English was burned to the stake. And as they were burned, they took the Scriptures that they had based their life upon, and they burned them as well. Forty years later, they were still so upset with John Wycliffe that they dug into the ground, and they found his remains, and they took them to the river and threw them into the river. And they dedicated that ceremony to the fact that the Word of God would never again be brought up on earth that it would be completely washed from the memory of man. In 1536, William Tyndale took the Word of God again and translated a New Testament. He was also burned to the stake. It's safe to say that there have literally been thousands upon thousands of people that have translated the Word and, and printed the Word and distributed the Word. They died because they held this text message so close to themselves. They treasured it. Voltaire, the, the, the French infidel who died in 1778, literally traveled the world speaking against the Word of God, and he made this prediction that 100 years from his death, the Bible would no longer be on this earth. Oh, well, Voltaire died. 50 years later, the Geneva Bible Society bought the home where Voltaire had lived and used the presses that Voltaire had used for his atheistic practices, and they have been producing the Bible ever since. (laughs) You know, Thomas Paine came to America in 1774. He encouraged the colonists to fight for their independence. Though he claimed to believe in God, his book, The Age of Reason, was an attack upon the Bible and, and became known as the Atheist Bible. Payne once said after writing his book, five years from now, there will not be a Bible in America. I've gone through the Bible with an ax and have cut down all the trees. Ten years later, Payne was still alive, but people had already forgotten him. His last years were lived as an outcast, and he said, I would give worlds had I not written the age of reason. And someone, and I found this so interesting, Someone a few years ago checked out Paine's book from a large library in California, and this was obviously before the explosion of the internet. But as they checked checked out his book, they happened to notice that in a city of two hundred fifty thousand people, a good sized library, Thomas Paine's book had been checked out listening <clears throat> sixteen times only in ten years. This is the guy said that. In five years, there will not be a Bible left in America. His book was checked out 16 times in 10 years. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will never pass away. So, as we wrap things up today, you know, I want us to understand this is not just any book. Did you hear me? This is not just any book. It's unlike any other book that has ever been written. It's more than just a beautiful composition of stories and poetry and history. It's the power of God into salvation. The Bible provides us with the content of our faith. The Bible provides us with conviction when we go astray from the faith. The Bible provides us with guidance as to how we might correct our mistakes slash sin. The Bible provides us with principles to apply to life so that we might develop Christ-like character. Alcoholics have been transformed by this book. Amen? Drug addicts have been miraculously converted as a result of this book. porn addicts have been transformed by the message of hope. But then I have to say, Joe Trussell has also been transformed because of the words of Jesus. And in heaven there will be millions upon millions upon millions. If you think that your church is the only one, only true church that's going to heaven man, we better just shrink heaven down really small because there will be millions upon millions of people who have had their sins cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Their names were written in the Lamb's book of life and they will be gathered around the throne of God worshiping together forever and ever and ever. And you know what I think at that time? When we look back over these little things that we thought about. Okay, well, which side do we put the piano on in the church? Or, I don't like the color of the carpet. Or, man, I like hymns versus this type of music. Or, well, I'd like the pastor to wear a robe instead of the way he dresses. For crying out loud, I think whenever we get to heaven, we're going to say... Oh, my word, how silly. Whenever we have been transformed, saved from our sins, cleansed by the blood of Jesus, rescued from the fires of hell, we're going to be gathered around the throne of Jesus and worship and worship and worship and worship. This book is reliable, It's remarkable. And it does, if if the Bible doesn't have a prominent place in your life, would you take a few minutes each day, spend time reading the breath of God? Father, we thank you for your word. So many people have tried to destroy it but they haven't been able to because heaven, the heavens and the earth will pass away but your word will never pass away. It will remain. God, I pray that we would give it the prominence that we should. Lord, instead of just saying, yeah, I believe the Bible, I believe it's inspired but then we let it collect dust. I pray that we would just give it a place of priority, a place of prominence in our lives that we would read it, that we would seek truths in it, but more than that, Father, that we would obey it. Thank you for our time together. Just, Lord, we've got a busy day today. Lord, we've got Sunday school now. Be with our Sunday school teachers. We've got the second service. We've got baptism. We've got an afternoon full, Lord, as the Collingsworth gets set up and in the evening that's going to be a blessing. I just pray that, Lord, you would be in every aspect. I pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.
0: You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.